Hello, and welcome to the Talking Precision Medicine podcast. In this series, we sit down with experts on the application of AI and big data analytics in the drug discovery space. Our guests are innovators, business decision makers, and thought leaders at the intersection of data and therapeutics. We discuss the promise, practice, challenges, and myths of AI and precision medicine. This show is brought to you by Genialis, and Raphael, its CEO, is your host. Genialis is focused on data integration and predictive modeling of disease biology to help accelerate the discovery and de-risk the development of novel therapeutics. Today we speak with Julie Walters. Julie is the founder of RareMark, an information hub for rare disease patients and their families. She has a degree in molecular genetics and a background in popular journalism and is an entrepreneur by nature. In fact, she was Female Entrepreneur of the Year at the UK's 2017 Enterprise Awards. Julie believes in harnessing the power of families affected by rare disease, and our discussion covers many of the ways RareMark aims to do just that. Let's get right into it. Hello, everyone. Today, it's my pleasure to be here with Julie Walters. Julie is the founder of RareMark. Julie, why don't you tell us what RareMark is and does, and we'll start from there. Great. Thanks, Rafe. Well, RareMark is here to help families affected by rare disease. So that could be somebody with a rare condition, or it could be someone caring for someone with a rare condition. And perhaps if I start with a definition, because there are 7,000 different rare conditions, and actually if you combine them all together, they're actually quite common. There's about 350 million people in the world affected by a rare condition, but there's just 7,000 different ones. And so you may have heard of you know, perhaps the more common rare, like sickle cell or hemophilia. And it's something that you're normally born with. It's normally genetic. And if we looked at those 7,000 rare conditions, only about 200 have treatments right now. So there's a huge amount to be done. And the exciting thing is what Raymark does is give families affected kind of in particular therapeutic areas. We can't do all of them, but we've chosen ones where we think we can make an impact, where there's a real need to educate patients and their families around what's changing about some of the new therapeutic options that are coming and to help them to actually contribute to that development. Because as you probably know, the pharmaceutical industry, which is you know, often responsible for actually bringing about these new treatments, if we put medical devices to one side and think about new therapies, you know, they've had 100 years of talking to doctors and it's only in the last 10 years they've really sort of realized that you can talk to patients and their opinion is different from doctors. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So in terms of choosing which diseases to focus on, does RareMark sort of make that decision itself? Or do you find yourself approached by existing uh, family groups or disease advocacy groups? Yes, we, we do make the decision. Uh, and we realized and RareMark's been in, uh, launched for about three years now, but we had a lot of research and development before. And we had a, another company that was working in the pharmaceutical space, um, helping patients understand what clinical trials were out there. Uh, and so I had a lot of experience to draw on, so we weren't starting from a blank sheet. So our kind of sweet spot is we've stayed away from rare cancers for the time being because if you're going direct to patients and carers online, which is our methodology, and how people find us is that we they find us where they're searching on Google. So they're on Google looking for, say, sickle cell treatment, sickle cell latest, 
we write content. I'm a journalist by background. I have a degree in molecular genetics. So we kind of meet patients and carers where they're searching. And so we write content that Google rates highly. So we're on page one. And so that methodology has to work. So in cancer, rare cancers are tough because a lot of people just know they have cancer or breast cancer or lung cancer. Um, and that's really hard to reach people because that's still such a broad subject. Most people still don't know what kind of cancer they have, whether it's a HER2 positive cancer or um, an MTRAC mediated cancer. If they did, we could reach them. So we've gone for kind of sickle cell hemophilia, um, cystic fibrosis, that, where content can be optimized easily. It's very easy to reach the right people online, where there's a lot of pharmaceutical activity, where there's a lot happening in the space. And 70% of our subscribers tend to be women. So it tends to be therapeutic areas where there are, um, are women involved, either as carers or as patients themselves. That's really interesting to me. Do you have a hypothesis why that is? And, you know, if these are not particularly, you know, gender specific mm. diseases? Yeah, no, we don't know yet. We don't know. It seems to reflect our anecdotal evidence that we've seen about activity online. So about thousands of subscribers around the world and we reach 98 countries only in English at the moment. And 50% of our subscribers are in the US. It's just mainly women. I think women are just more active online, more using that as a tool to find out either for themselves or for their family nuances. We don't really know yet, but we're really interested in finding out more as our journey continues. Perhaps you can tell me a little more about what a, a patient or a care provider would get once they, they reach Raremark. Is it purely education or is there some networking as well? So at the moment, we're an information service. So if I talk about sickle cell, we're spending a lot of time at the moment uh, investing in that community because there is so much to be done. They would come to Raremark and they would find the latest information written in a way that they could understand. So we take the latest science that's on PubMed, so peer-reviewed scientific journals, write it in a way that a 10 to 13-year-old could understand. It's still true. It's still factual. It's still helpful, but it's written in a way that normal people can understand. So they can find out the latest. And we've just heard from one of our community members with hemophilia um, we were doing some user testing recently and we asked him you know why does he come back and he said well because there's the chance that there might be something new so if there's something significant in hemophilia then he one of our users is using it as an information service some other people use it because we cut out the noise so we're a trusted space. We curate everything. So we take out the kind of Dr. Googling. We take all that time out because sometimes going to Google can be quite a scary place. So they find information. Um, so they might find out about a clinical trial. They might find out about a new treatment that's just been approved. They might learn about the wisdom of other people like them. So, uh, for instance, we just uh, ran a survey with our sickle cell community in the United States on their experience of going to the emergency room. And we knew that they were there a lot, but we just didn't realize how often. So this was a small sample, so about 30 people um, in this one. And we asked them how often they were ending up in the emergency room. And on average, it's five times a year. And one of our, our community members was there 24 times 
times a year. And that just gives you an indication of how uncontrolled and how desperate they are to end up in the emergency room again. And then how we can use that is from that experience, we're now producing a toolkit on how to be heard in the emergency room. Because often what happens is they're not believed, that clinicians and nurses don't normally, may not believe that they're having pain crisis, which is why they're there. Because in sickle cell, your red blood cells get stuck in your veins. It's extremely painful. And so just helping them learn from that. And then from April, we're launching a kind of Remark 2.0 or 3.0 using machine learning, which is a more personalized experience. So we will be profiling our members with their permission. And then a bit like Facebook does, they deliver content that they believe that you want. And we will be delivering personalized content. Um, there are a lot of topics I want to touch on, so I'll list a few and then we can kind of go in whatever order makes sense. Well, maybe we'll stay here on, on the machine learning and the curated content. There, I think that sort of Facebook's kind of unsavory and, and maybe sort of secretive use of people's data has given people a bit of a bad taste in their mouth for mm -hmm. this notion. Then again, shopping on something like Amazon would be infuriating if they didn't suggest <laughs> stuff that you want. It would be too much. So I'm actually a huge fan of, of machine curated content when it works, but how do you think about about patient consent and patient advocacy when you are kind of tooling content based on their profiles? It's a really interesting subject. So we have an ethics committee. And so we were just discussing this with our ethics committee yesterday. And, um, you know, some people like myself and yourself, I like being profiled. I like people and services giving me a selected content rather than everything. But one of the things we were discussing yesterday, and I think we're going to take this forward in the, in the new Raymark, which launches in April, is actually you have the choice. So you can switch on the profiling or you can switch it off and then see how it's different. Because people, I think, are, as you said, are much more interested in how that changes their experience of a product or a service. And I think it's really interesting. It was an idea from one of our um, members of the ethics committee to actually have the ability to say, well, if I turned off the profiling, which is basically I, you know, our members, our Raymark members have told us stuff about them, say, I'm, I have sickle cell, I'm 29 years old, I live in the United States, I'm particularly interested in hearing about new treatments or I'm particularly interested in hearing about the experience of other people like me and what if we turn that off because we're going to start delivering that content to you but what if we turned it off and just said well here's sickle cell 101 and like if you live with sickle cell all your life you don't need to be told what it is or you don't want to be told so I think that's a really interesting concept to put those tools in people's hands so that they can mm -hmm. turn it on or off sure in a way it's sort of opting in for a deeper engagement you know with all the caveats attached that you know all of a sudden a computer is learning about you. Yeah. So I, I'm also curious how you think about getting, so you mentioned a survey you did around ER visits, but how do you um, get information in from patients? So on your website, it says that patients can have a say in how new treatments are developed, for example. Mm -hmm. What does that actually mean? What kind of say do patients have? So that could be uh, when a pharmaceutical company is designing a clinical trial they will be thinking about what kind of data are we going to collect from patients? And often that trial is designed by scientists and medics coming up with an idea of all the lovely data they would love to collect because it would be amazing to have this rich data set. And sometimes they fail to think about what that might mean for patients. So what's an increasing trend that's happening in industry now is they're actually bringing a group of patients in to meet 
the chief medical officer or the chief scientific officer who's writing the protocol of what's going to happen to you when you come to take part in a clinical trial. And so one of a really practical way is they may say protocol before was we were going to have you at the trial center for eight hours. We were going to draw blood. We were going to do an MMR or an ECG or everything we could possibly think of because from a scientific perspective, that would give us a really rich data set. And what patients are now increasingly doing, particularly if they're sitting across from the chief medical officer is saying, is that really necessary? I mean, have you thought about the fact that we're going to be here for eight hours? Or have you thought about the fact that that's my child? And why would I sit there for five hours or I have my child sit there for five hours? with this big head you know helmet on or whatever they've designed so that's one really practical way um, another way is to just be able to particularly in rare where it's sometimes really hard to actually have the patient data to begin to even think about what a clinical trial protocol might be so we don't know the natural history which is what is the condition going to be looked like you know what how is it going to progress over time without an intervention so just being able to give their data in terms of natural history either through a patient registry or through rare mark or through another way can really accelerate a pharmaceutical company hey now this looks really interesting i can see there's some rich data here that we can begin so they're kind of two practical ways and so the rare mark is a business so the customers for the business then are pharma companies or cro's or people on the either the development or provider side how do you think about the business side of that and then of course making that as transparent as possible to the customers so number one is key to be transparent. So everybody knows I can go to our website and it will tell you how we make money, which is basically by aggregating and anonymizing patient data and selling it to pharmaceutical partners or contract research organizations. But we do that with the patient's consent. And I think how it works, so we choose the therapeutic areas in which we play. So come back to um, sickle cell. There are 10 pharmaceutical companies in phase two, phase three. And so we approach them and begin a conversation as to where their gaps are. Is it that they need some help with clinical trial design? Is it that they need to accelerate a clinical trial recruitment program? Because as you probably know, 80% of trials recruit late, 50% of trial sites that are activated by the contract research organization or by the pharma company will recruit zero or one patient. Um, and so there's this huge need. And it's, it's just an accident of the way the industry works because they, they think that the clinicians will just, will just find the patients because that's their job. But actually, it's not their job. It's what they do on top of their job. Their job is day-to-day -to, -day to treat patients. And they go, oh, by the way, I've got this clinical trial. And so there's a real opportunity to, what we do is go to patients and say that doctor's recruiting um, and do that in an ethical way and pre-screen them and introduce them to the site team. So, um, or in commercial, uh, it may be that, again, if I go back to sickle cell, they're trying to figure out in that situation in the emergency room, what is actually going on? And if they have a new treatment that stops them getting to the emergency room, what kind of patients would be suitable for that treatment? We go to them and, and start a conversation. Do you dabble at all or, or have some sort of partnerships around genetics data and genomics data? So if patients want to contribute their genome to an effort or, or something similar, do you broker that kind of exchange as well? Mm, good question. We haven't as yet, uh, but we are actively looking at it. And I think there's a couple of things that we're exploring. 
One is that data is extremely helpful for the development of new treatments. So we know in cystic fibrosis, there are 2000 mutations at the CF gene. We have some targeted therapies that treat about, I think it's a later 60 to 70% of the CF population, but there are another 30% that are not treated. So there's a great opportunity to work in partnership with patient groups to begin to collect that data towards developing a new treatment. Understanding the genetic variation is really important to begin to develop um, a treatment because, of course, that affects the protein. We're looking at it in collaboration with the patient group. There are enough providers out there. There's 2,000 clinical genetics companies collecting data. So they, they're responding to physician requests to diagnose somebody with a rare condition. So there's many, many providers of clinical genomic data sets. What there isn't at the moment in our experience is someone who can stand with the patient group who often, in our experience, because it's hard developing a drug. There's a lot of IP to be thought about. There's a lot of agreements um, to be thought through. And so what often can happen is the patient group has built up the patient registry for some natural history data. They have raised millions of dollars to get that registry to be perhaps even a gene therapy. And then what happens is they might partner perhaps with an academic center or another center. They own all the IP, potentially the academic center or others that they might partner with. And then the patient group loses out. They end up with nothing. So I think there is a role for somebody like Remark to partner with patient advocates advocacy groups to collect that genetic data towards a treatment and make sure that they have skin in the game. And when we've seen the Cystic Fibrosis Foundation in the US who's benefited financially from the early development of the Vertex drug, which they invested in early on. And that means that they can invest in developing new treatments of the future or support services. And we just see time and time again that uh, patient groups who have really been the groundswell of getting something started, when it starts to become commercialized, often get excluded. And that's where our focus, I think, is a social impact business. So we make money, we're a private company, but we also believe in making a social impact. I think that's where we can make the biggest difference on the genomic side. Yeah, that's fascinating. I think this is a, a really phenomenally interesting area of, of genomics. And we've seen recently the announcement, for example, of companies like Luna DNA and their, their partnership with Genetic Alliance and a real recognition that you know the old way of, of handling patient data in a kind of very cold and commoditized fashion probably is not sustainable going forward if we want to really make a difference. I'm interested to, to understand how else you think about partnerships. So I'm familiar, at least in the kind of biopharma and startup space with a number of companies tackling rare disease because they have a, a way of doing it where big pharma probably wouldn't touch it. Do you have sort of industry partners already on the drug development side or is it just who's running a trial in these areas? No, we do get involved earlier on in drug development. You know, where we started was in clinical trial recruitment. So that is where most right. of our experience is. Although we have, you know, we're now working with commercial teams. I think earlier in the development process, I really don't want to just be a provider of genetic and phenotypic data. I really want to be a conduit to partnering with the patient community because it's very easy for a pharma or a biotech to get the data and say, thank you very much. But that's not really a partnership. And then the patient community is still excluded from that journey. And you know, our belief is that they should be involved. So we would like to find a few areas in which mm -hmm. we play, particularly say in rare blood, 
where we have more gene therapies coming now. I mean, the FDA expects there to be 10 to 20 gene therapies approved each year over the next kind of 20 years. And when I graduated with a degree in molecular genetics uh, 20 years ago, we thought the molecular revolution was on us then. But of course, the field wasn't ready. But we do now have the tools with that combination of um, the gene therapy tools and patients right. online. You know, it's the bringing those different bits together. That's where we see that's the bit piece that we would like to play. I remember in grad school having a, a late night conversation with a friend and and she was frustrated about choosing her, her thesis topic and complaining that all the good discoveries have been made already and boy, how wrong we were. Yeah, <laughs> so nice. absolutely. Um, but I think it's an amazing time now to be working in drug discovery and development because these new tools are just going to make such a difference. And patients and their families are not standing on the sidelines watching, you know, they're really active participants. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have friends, there's one extraordinary friend in the United Kingdom called Nick Sirogue, uh, who was just featured in Nature for his um, heroic efforts, uh, you know, just as a normal parent who has two uh, sons with a rare condition called alcaptonuria, and that is a very aggressive form of osteoarthritis. So in their future, it could have been possible that they'd end up in a wheelchair. Mm -hmm. But Nick found a drug um, that had been used in a previous clinical trial, got the active ingredient, raised the money across Europe, enrolled the clinicians at the trial centers, found the patients, and we um, helped on that journey a little, tiny bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we're very close to an approval. I mean, that is just, you know, he did it. He sure. didn't do it on his own, but he was the active, he was the activator. And I think there is a role to help others become more Nicks. I think the world would be a much better place if there were more Nicks. And many want to, they just don't know how. Yeah, no, it sounds like you're, you're sort of giving, giving some fuel and, and energy and support to these real champions. Mm. This is a, a thread now. So this, um, this conversation you and I are having is, will be the, the second uh, episode around rare disease. The first one we did was with Ethan Perlstein, who's the founder and CEO of Perlara, which is actually an early stage drug company um, that works on rare disease in interesting animal models. And his you know, full-throated take on this is the power of a family in need is the thing that moves mountains. You know, it's, the science is important, but it's the families that, that are really the heroes here. Absolutely. 100%. 100%. They will be the activators of change and they will be the ones that are working through the night to, to bring about this change and to find the drug that may have been used or potential treatment in another trial that didn't really work. They are absolutely the, the drivers of change. And I think, you know, my early career was as a journalist um, in Australia where I'm originally from. You can probably hear from my accent. And as a junior reporter, I always used to love interviewing I thought what an honor to go and interview ordinary people achieving extraordinary things because as a news journalist you're always in usually an extraordinary circumstance and I think the same thing what what appeals to me about the rare disease space is that so many people are just heroic um, the heroic how they even manage to care for a child with a rare condition let alone do anything else to comb through the medical literature to bring about partners to get funding to move those mountains it is just, it is again and again, this heroic journey. I want to um, ask you a question that I, I ask a lot of folks in this conversation. The, the nominal um, title of the podcast is around precision medicine, talking precision medicine. How do you define precision medicine and how does Raremark fit into that uh, broader definition? 
So precision medicine for me is that it's, it, you know, it's targeted to your particularly genetics. And we're talking about rare because about 80% of rare conditions are caused by a single gene mutation. So for us, that's the beginning of how we begin to think about it. And I think there's been a lot of talk about precision medicine and until recently, really not that many examples in the real world. I mean, the first one I came across was Roche's Herceptin um, for breast cancer. So you have the HER2 receptor. Herceptin will make an enormous difference to your life. If you haven't got the HER2 receptor, it's a complete waste of time and money. But I think now that we are beginning to see an extraordinary wave of innovation that I think is going to take those unfortunately rare examples and, and make them much more common. And um, it's a, just a great time to be in this industry to be able to help a little way to take precision medicine into perhaps rare conditions that may not have developed those targeted therapies without a bit of help. Yeah, it, it is definitely an exciting time. Another topic that is in the news a lot these days, which maybe is a little um, less inspiring, is about drug prices and drug pricing. Um, I read mm-hmm. something sort of tragic this morning in the headlines of families in the UK leaving because they can't get Vertex's cystic fibrosis drug in the UK. And mm-hmm. so I'm, I'm generally excited about the ability to make drugs for people, especially biologics. I'm also genuinely concerned about the cost of doing so. Do you have any observations about you know how to make drugs for rare disease? diseases for these sort of smaller indications, affordable, available, etc.? I mean, it's a really tough topic and I think it will change. I think, you know, we've only really had over the last 10 years this kind of paradigm of pharma understanding that you can make a lot of money from a rare disease population. And if you look at the number of FDA approvals last year, 57% were in rare. So the industry has now got, there's money to be made in rare, which if you look kind of 20, 30 years ago, and Henry Tremere's and the pioneers at Genzyme, they hadn't established that paradigm yet. So we've now established, okay, money can be made in rare. But the question is, is the balance tipped too far? And we've seen moves at Congress and we've seen um, senior politicians in the United States saying like enough. So I think we will see the market begin to respond to that uh, in the United States. I think the United Kingdom, where I spend 50% of my time in Boston and 50% in London, you know, in the United Kingdom, we have um, drug rationing. I mean, that's what it is. And and I think with the Vertex uh, case, people know that there is another treatment coming. And the data looks very, in cystic fibrosis, the data looks very promising. So I think that, you know, in the Vertex case, there is some, also some context that the next wave may be a different story um, that still doesn't help people in the United Kingdom right now who are suitable for the current treatment. So, you know, it is complicated, but I think we'll see a change. I don't think it's going to stay as it is now. There's also reason to hope there are some really interesting and disruptive um, business models that we see implemented by some of these smaller pharma. Uh, I'll give a a shout out to a fellow California company, Notable Labs, which just moved at lightning pace to uh, discover a potential therapy for for pediatric blood cancer and essentially have donated the commercialization rights to Cures Within Reach um, to, you know, to a not-for-profit. Brilliant. Yeah, I know Bruce who runs Cures Within Reach. Brilliant. Brilliant company. 
and this uh, Matt De Silva, the CEO and founder of, of um, Notable Labs, uh, you know, has a very personal story as well. And, and I just think this is a, a real example, a shining example for, for the rest of us as we think about it. And the, the US FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, has a, a voucher program to economically incentivize this kind of, um, we'll call it altruism. You know, there, there are other examples. I think also in drug repurposing, perhaps this is a way to show big pharma companies that, hey, that compound that's on the shelf may actually have another life. Just please don't gouge anyone with it. Right, right. But we'll have to see how that works out. What are your, um, what are your dreams? What's, what's Raremark going to do this year and, and what's it going to be known for three years from now? Mm, good question. Well, this year is to launch the new Raremark, the personalized health engine. Um, so using um, machine learning to make sure that we deliver the right content to the right people and just really be their kind of trusted guide on the journey. That's our vision for this year. In three years' time, I would like us to be looking at and have set up our first programs with patient groups to actually be with them as they journey through to accelerating the treatment, the development of new treatments, because we now have the tools in our hands and the experience and the heroic example of others who've been there and done that and to be able to share that with the patient community and help them move across that kind of valley of death where you, you know, you're in preclinical, it takes so long, it takes so much money. I think we're going to see that speed it up a lot. And I would just love, you know, we've only got about 200 rare diseases now with treatments. It would be amazing if we can accelerate that to a thousand uh, together in the next few years and then just move the flywheel faster. I mean, as an entrepreneur, you know that when you first start off with anything, it seems to take forever to get anything new done. And then the flywheel, the second time it's faster and the third time it's faster and the fourth time it's faster you know we now have advocates from the patient community who have done this and together we can kind of set the path for the next generation that's a great goal i'm looking forward to uh rooting for your success uh this year and and going forward julie thank you very much for spending some time with me today this was a really fascinating conversation and uh i, I think it's just incredibly important work that you guys are doing um i thank hope you. i hope that we have a reason to collaborate in the future uh, Absolutely, I'd love to. Congratulations to you. Thanks so much, Ray. Great to talk to you. This has been Episode 9 of Talking Precision Medicine. Thanks for listening.